0: This is Eric Larson. Check out my new book, The Splendid and the Vile. You're listening to Books on Pod. This was a lovely conversation. And, hey, I could actually make a shout-out to my daughter, Lauren,
1: who lives in Austin.
0: Hello, readers. The Captain is a writer, creator, instigator, and author of the book, Fucking History, 111 Lessons You Should Have Learned in School. Captain, thank you for the time. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well, Trey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's get right into this. I'm going to ask you about some of these 111 lessons you should have learned in school. And I'll be honest, I wasn't even close on most of these. There were maybe one or two that I actually knew, but uh, you stumped me on most of them. And let's start with King Peter I of Portugal. Who is he and why is he a great example of the need for all of us to find someone who is proud to be with you and wants to show you off in public?
1: this is the beauty of writing a book like this is people expect you to know these off the top of your head after you've crammed so many lessons in (laughs) you know in myself i kind of do have to refer to them um, back in my book but i I believe the one you're referring to is peter whose father had his lover beheaded and so once his father passed and he assumed the throne and became king himself his first order of business was enacting some much-needed revenge he found the men who were in charge of beheading his love and he had their hearts cut out while they were still alive something he took great pride in himself and then he went on to exhume her body from the ground dress it up like a queen and sit her next to him on the throne where he then proceeded to have all the nobles and townsfolk come by and kiss her hands as the rightful queen because as he said you know she was his first and only love and he later went on to become a king known for absolutely brutal torture methods and he took way too much pride in you know, being kind of an emo, an emo kid and taking things a little (laughs) too far. But yeah, definitely. um, I think the story reflects kind of something everyone's searching for, just in a very morbid way. I mean, you want someone who's going to go out of their way for you. You want someone who's going to, you know, be willing to, you know, even upset their family or others around them because they feel strongly enough about you. And I think that story epitomizes that to an extreme extent. um, Something that, you know, I, I find fascinating, like I do most of these stories and, You know, the whole premise of this book was taking these stories throughout time, you know, whether they happened hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and showing people that we're really no different today. It doesn't matter what era we're living in. Everyone has heartbreak. Everyone has troubles with love. Everyone has arguments with their family. You know, you go through times of depression, times of achievement, and you can learn from the people in the past with these extreme examples. And again, I think people today tend to feel like the world is a horrible place when it's like no 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 you look at the stuff we did to people hundreds of thousands of years ago and trust me the world is very tame compared to how it used to be and so that was kind of the whole take with the book was taken you know an, an approach of learning from the past to apply it to your today in fun ways that you probably weren't taught in school and like you said i mean i tried very hard to find stories that i didn't think a lot of people knew about or hadn't heard about and you know the book is predominantly um, stories of, of, of females, because unfortunately, I think those stories are the ones that haven't been told enough. And so I found it interesting to research myself. I found them interesting to learn about myself and hope that readers would as
0: well. Where are you finding some of these nuggets? Because there are some pretty incredible stories in here that don't come anywhere close to most history books. I mean, are you having to do deep dives at the library or you just finding yourself down rabbit holes on the internet that are leading to these things?
1: It's a little bit of both. The book actually, I never intended to make this a book, to be honest. Um, I had a pretty uh, large Instagram, social media following for the past five years. And I just started posting stories on Sundays where I'd take, you know, a historical figure and I'd try and find a way to make the story relatable. And I did it for fun. And I was going down rabbit holes. I was reading books. You know, I'd see... A clip of something on History Channel, and I'd be like, "Damn, why aren't more people talk about that?" And I'd find a way to research deeper myself. Uh, I was working at an advertising agency when I first started doing this back in about 2015. I had a colleague who used to work for MSN back when it was, you know, the primary news engine, and he helped me with dig up a lot of this stuff and helped me source a lot of things. And so it really started as a hobby. I thought it was a funny way to to make history relatable, and then. After a couple years of doing it and having so many stories and, you know, characters and themes developed, I was, I was talking with my dad one time and he's the one that really kind of pushed me to put it into a book. Have
0: you always been fascinated by history or is that something that developed over time in high school or college or sometime beyond that?
1: I don't think it developed until college, to be honest. I think like most of us, I found history pretty boring because we were taught all the same things over and over and I never remember a time in junior high or high school that I, I looked forward to my history courses. Um, I grew up in Utah, and so a lot of my history is local state history, was which was a lot of you know pioneer history stuff like that. And I, I never really gave a shit. Occasionally, I'd hear something that was cool, but really, it wasn't even school. It's just my own personal research, like hearing some stories. Like I said, and I'd be like, "Damn, that's fucking badass." That person went through that, you know, like like Keith Peena, for example. Like that dude, like. It's it's just cool and fascinating to hear that, and I I personally find it intriguing, and I just started really digging into it myself, probably in my, my 20s.
0: So for a long time in the Middle Ages, people weren't allowed to divorce. As you point out, a woman had to literally poison her husband to get out of a prearranged marriage to kin or a family friend because it was beneficial to the bloodlines. What changed in the mid-16th century in France that benefited these women in these loveless marriages?
1: I'm glad that you're picking the stories that I actually do kind of know off the top of my head. Um, you're talking about the impotence courts, um, yep. if, I'm, if I'm correct. The story about how women finally had a way out of marriage that didn't involve death. If you were married to, say, your father's creepy old friend, like you said, for the sake of the family <laughs> bloodline, and you wanted out of the marriage, you had a way out with these impotence courts where, if the husband was unable to perform his duty in the bedroom, you were legally allowed to divorce him. And so what happened is a woman would accuse her husband of not being able to get it up. And in order to prove that they'd have to go in front of witnesses and prove that the man was incapable of, of, you know, doing the deed, which, you know, we all know stage frights are real things. I'm sure that played a role at most times, but other times, you know, if you were a younger lady married to some old fuck, it was a good way to prove that the marriage was worthless. And if he couldn't get it up, you were allowed to get a divorce. And so I'm assuming there were a lot of marital fights over that. And I can't imagine how embarrassing that would be. But also I find it incredibly funny and I find it incredibly, um, you know, fair to be honest. Um, I think that's kind of a good way to get back at arranged marriages and be like, you know what? You're fucking worthless. You're old. I don't love you. Let's prove once and for all this marriage is worthless. And they were allowed to do that with those impotence courts. Dude, I don't like, taking a
0: leak in the troughs at Wrigley Field next to another dude much less trying to do that in front of a bunch of random people if my wife took me to one of these divorce courts I'd be screwed
1: I think you'd get divorced just out of principle at that point if someone if, <laughs> if, if, if someone said hey I want to prove that you can't have sex with me I think out of sheer respect for yourself you should just get the fucking divorce <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Okay, so piggybacking has been a sanctimonious ritual for a lot of our lives. Bonding parents with children, drunk college kids with other drunk college kids, dwarf porn stars with their partners post-coitus. What led to piggybacking literally saving lives in the year 1140?
1: Oh, this is going to be the German castle. So King Conrad was trying to overtake a castle in the uh, 11, like around, yeah, 11, 1140 and him being a not so patient man, but also a fair man um, told the women, you know, listen, I'm going to basically come in and destroy this castle. I'm going to give you guys a way out. I only want to kill your husbands and your sons because they're the warriors. So women get out of the castle and whatever you can carry, you can have and the women being smart and obviously, you know, loving their husbands chose to piggyback their husbands out. And so line after line of women came out of the castle, carrying their husbands on their back. And the king was stunned at first, but as a king should do, he stuck true to his word. They evacuated the castle, saved their husband's lives, and then he got what he wanted, which was the castle in the first place without having a bunch of bloodshed.
0: In the chapter that is titled Fear of Missing Out, there's FOMO, and then there's actually missing out on something incredible. Why is Frank Hayes a sad example of this
1: in the world of horse racing? (laughs) Haha. you are picking the ones I know well, thank God. Yeah, so Frank Hayes was a jockey that finally got his chance to run in the Belmont. And he won his first race ever, but he suffered a heart attack just before crossing the finish line. And by the time he had crossed the line, obviously his horse still sprinting, um, he passed away. And when they went to go award him afterwards, they found his uh, lifeless body still strapped into the saddle. And so literally he missed out on the biggest moment of his life, finally had his first major win. And he didn't even get to fulfill it or achieve it because, you know, like I said, he had a heart attack shortly before crossing. What
0: does Mark Twain have to do with the
1: elastic bra strap? Dude, What doesn't Mark Twain have to do with the elastic bra strap? I mean, Mark <laughs> Twain, um, if you've if you noticed in the book, Mark Twain is the only person who appears multiple times. And that's because I've always had kind of an affinity for Mark Twain. Uh, growing up, my mother got me started early on some of the classic novels and some of his were the first books I read. I remember being in second and third grade reading Mark Twain books with my mom. And... You know, I, I've always found him to be a very interesting man, whether it was the fact that, you know, you can read about he lay in his bed and faced the headboard instead of the footboard because he thought the headboard was more interesting to look at. He had three dogs that are named I Know, You Know, and Don't Know. So Mark Twain always had these <laughs> cool eccentricities about him. And he's actually the man who patented the elastic clasp for um, clothing. And you know, he originally, I'm sure, used it for something along the lines of suspenders or pants. But it is that same elastic strapping clasp that later went on to be used in, you know, common bra straps. So, in a way, Mark Twain fathered the modern bra as well, in addition to being, you know, the father of the American novel. He's considered one of the greatest novelists of all time because he was the first one to really take those American novels and make them popular. And now he's also made it much easier for, uh, you know, women to not only support themselves, but for men to hopefully. You know, help them out in the bedroom with a little bit easier of a of a tool in the back.
0: Is it safe to assume that he could probably take care of that clasp one handed?
1: You would hope that, but again, Mark Twain's a weird guy. For all I know, he carried some really nice pocket knife with him everywhere, and just you know, (laughs) he just seems like the kind of individual that would have done something like that. But um, yeah, I, I would imagine that he was talented enough to do that with his wife.
0: I'm proud to say that this is one of the few that I actually knew. Graham crackers are obviously an important yeah. component in <laughs> s'mores, but how does their origin story involve a different sort of gooey, marshmallowy substance? <laughs>
1: marshmallowy substance. Yeah, so Pastor Graham, he's the inventor of the graham cracker, and he preached that a clean diet led to a clean mind. So if you were a young teenage boy, having a problem with masturbation, your parents would take you to go see the pastor and he would put you on his special diet of, I believe, it was just milk, eggs, and his special crackers. And they were known as graham crackers. Back then, they were just flour and water. They weren't the sweetened ones that you know today. And he, you know, really would put you on that diet, like I said, in hopes to cleanse your mind and cleanse you of the desire to wanna, to wanna, I guess, bake your own bread or crumble your own toast, as they would say. Um, and then later on, it was a, a follower of his um, I think his name's John Harvey. Kellogg is his full name, but Kellogg's cornflakes also came from the same belief that you needed bland food in order to live a bland existence and not touch yourself.
0: Hmm.
1: Why is a woman named Stagecoach
0: Mary maybe one of the most badass characters you highlight in this book?
1: Oh, I think the name alone explains that. Um, yeah, Mary Field. she was born a slave. Um, later received her freedom and she moved to Montana, where at the age of 63, she tried to get what is known as a star route in the United States Postal Service, which is the name designated for the more difficult routes. Typically, it's going to be a low population area in the mountains. And they would contract them out rather than have an actual United States Postal employee. Um, so at the age of 63, she got one of those because she could hitch a horse or a mule faster than anyone else who auditioned. And so it was her and her trusted mule Moses who served the area of Cascade, Montana for about eight years. Um, she received the name stagecoach Mary because despite her route being way too difficult for a stagecoach, her mail delivery service was just as reliable as the, the easier stagecoach routes. And she became really well known in the cities she delivered to for being foul mouthed, whiskey drinking, very opinionated, and she got a bit of a reputation where everyone kind of started to to love and revere her because she delivered their letters on time, but it was also a good time to be around. So when she passed away, um, the town actually shut down for the day and it was the largest funeral in attendance um, for her, her big day. And, you know, before that they had passed a law momentarily that banned women from drinking in saloons in Montana. And Mary was the only female granted that exemption by the mayor himself said, You know, Mary, you're still allowed to come in because, you know, we love you. And so she was a total badass. I mean, imagine the age of 63 going over the mountains of Montana with a mule trying to deliver snow. I mean, trying to deliver mail through the snow. I mean, that's that right there is badass. And coming from her her beginnings of slavery, it just shows how much, you know, fortitude she had just to to deal with the shit and get through it.
0: You know, out of the 111 stories, there really weren't many that I just kind of shrugged my shoulders at. How many of these facts did you come up with, and was it difficult to whittle it down to 111?
1: Um, I think over the years, I've probably had over two or 300 that I've either considered for lessons or research. Whittling it down to 111, I did strip a lot down for the book, but more so because I didn't want it to be as repetitive or there's some similar instances with people, you know, obviously destroying kingdoms in very, you know, common ways. And so I I wanted to make sure it was kind of, you know, expansive in the fact that a lot, a lot of it was a similar kind of story. Um, So, I I mean, to answer your question, it was kind of hard, but at the same time, I I knew the vision I wanted for the book. And so it came together pretty quickly and I just started eliminating everything that I felt was 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 similar.
0: Fantastic. Finished product. Congratulations on that. Now, there are people who can have entire conversations without saying a word. but They're usually giving something away with their eyes. And then there's the Uh method that Thomas Edison and his wife used to chat in a crowded place without a single person knowing. How so?
1: Yeah, so Thomas Edison um, was definitely all about keeping things between him and his wife. He didn't want his relationship shared to the world like you see too far too many people do on social media these days. So he taught his wife Morse code and they would hold hands when they were at dinner parties and communicate and obviously probably talk shit about the other party goers by tapping Morse code into the palms of each other's hands, <laughs> which I, I thought I thought was a really badass idea coming from someone who obviously had a bunch of good ideas himself, but Again, there's a lot of controversy around him, too, because we know he was a notorious thief of inventions. But regardless, Morse code is a great way to talk shit in parties. It's kind of the old-timey way of texting the person sitting right next to you, I think.
0: Now, Mary Toft was a strange lady in the 1700s in England. Why is she perhaps the worst pet owner of all time?
1: Strange is an understatement. Mary Toft was fucking crazy. Um, (laughs) Mary, you know, Mary Toth, like a lot of people these days was very desperate to be famous. Um, so she found a way to do that by giving birth to bunnies, um, that she would legitimately stuff pieces of bunnies or, you know, dead bunnies up her, her vagina and (sighs) then pretend to give birth to them. And she did it in such a convincing fashion. She tricked a lot of physicians into believing that she was indeed Somehow becoming impregnated with rabbits, whether through dreams at night or some other kind of weird mystical force. She got the attention of nobles, royals, politicians, and it wasn't until a politician called her out on it that it finally came to light that she had just been stuffing dead bunnies up there. And it was actually her husband that was doing the bunny purchasing for her. And I think, I can't remember, it's a, it's a dozen or more that she successfully birthed in front of people to really live this lie. And Gained some notoriety from being a a nobody in a small town in England to being, you know, somebody that everyone thought was capable of having some, some sort of power.
0: That's a pathetic level of cucking by her husband too, by the way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, I'm all for being like a, a, you know, a a dog mom or a cat daddy and taking good care of your pets. Like you want to throw my birthday party, do that. You want to dress them in cute outfits, do that. But I mean, draw the line (laughs) at putting them up in you. I mean, that's just trying to be a mother way too far and that's, that's some serious reverse Stockholm syndrome shit.
0: <laughs> it is indeed. All right. Uh, nachos are a simple but brilliant food creation. Who invented them and when?
1: It was actually invented by Ignacio. Um, I can't remember the exact date, but it was on the border of Texas and Mexico where some military wives were visiting the restaurant and the chef was out. So the maitre d', which was named Ignacio, uh, ran in the back. And he quickly grabbed what he could, which was, you know, some dried tortillas, some cheese and some jalapenos, and he threw it through the oven, um, just to try and feed these women before the you know, because the chef was not currently there and it turned out they love it. And shortly after, um, they talked about it enough that a ballpark, I believe it was a ballpark was the first, just outside um, Mexico on the border of Texas started serving them to their patrons. And that's kind of how nachos were invented. They were invented out of, you know, sheer desperation and now they're what you eat when you're desperately drunk and trying to stand up. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Some of your
0: historical info goes back less than 25 years. What did scientists learn about penguins in 1998?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've been lied to our whole lives, basically. I mean, everyone talks about finding their penguin, the idea that penguins mate for life. And sure, some species do it, but um, some don't. And there was some scientists studying them back in the 90s and found out that A lot of penguins were engaging in actual prostitution for rocks in order to build bigger nests during breeding season. So what would happen is the male penguins would go out hunting or a portion of them would be out hunting for food. And they would observe the females that were staying back and they would leave their mate while their mate was out. And they would find another male that was still there and they would have sex in exchange to take some rocks from his nest. Or they would fake like they were about to mate and they'd take a nest in this jet like a hooker stealing a dude's wallet and I mean that alone right there kind of breaks the whole fantasy that the book is meant to break I mean a lot of the stories in the book are kind of meant to break your beliefs of you know what you might have thought was historical and I mean even though the fact that didn't happen not too long ago the 90s is still history and i I like to include it in there because it just shows how you know much stuff we've been taught is wrong and how quickly like certain rumors can take off and I just think it's funny because I still hear people to this day talk about, oh, I want to find my penguin. He's my penguin. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, you call your boyfriend your penguin. You're basically calling yourself prostitute at the same time. you got to do your research on how these animals actually are.
0: Oh, man. Uh, you accurately point out that running for exercise absolutely sucks. And running on a treadmill especially sucks. Who's the asshole that invented the first treadmill and why would he do such a thing?
1: It was some engineer who was actually driving by a local prison, and he noticed that the prisoners weren't exactly being punished. They were kind of out in the prison yard just hanging out. And so he thought, okay, there's got to be a way we can put these guys to work. So he invented the first treadmill as a literal mill. Um, It was a belt or a series of stairs these guys would walk on that would power a grinder to grind down some corn. And so it served dual purpose. It punished the guys. But also served a service by grinding corn for the community and it just proves that punishment uh i mean treadmills are it's they suck because they're punishment they were invented to literally punish prisoners and somewhere along the line some guy got a great idea to to show off some abs and say nope you can look like this you know it's literally a prison sculpted hard bot at that point and it just completely changed how the machine was marketed from being a punishment device to being something that everyone you know, had in their homes through the 90s. I haven't seen a treadmill in someone's house in probably 10, 15 years. No, it's all shifted to the Peloton bikes now, right? Yeah, I see bikes, but I, haven't seen, God, I really haven't seen a treadmill in a long time.
0: Even going to the gym now, people don't get on the treadmills anymore. They do the stair steppers or the ellipticals. I mean, people realize treadmills just flat out suck.
1: They do suck. It's like takes everything that sucks about running and then you're standing stationary and you're with a bunch of other smelly people and you're watching some crappy news channel. It's like everything that r- sucks about running is 10 times worse when there's no scenery, no movement, no fresh air. It's their hell. They're absolute hell.
0: Well said. And last uh, question on some of the facts that you can find in fucking history. With some of the book subjects, we were actually taught about it in history, albeit a bullshit version propagandized by our government, like with Johnny Appleseed. What's the true story behind why he planted all of those apple trees?
1: <laughs> I fucking love this story. So Johnny Appleseed was a real dude. Um, but, you know, in grade school, you were taught that Johnny Appleseed was doing it to feed America, when in reality, Johnny Appleseed was doing it to get... America drunk. His name was John Chapman. He was a well known cider grower. And it was during um, the time, I think it was like the early 1800s, when if you wanted to claim land, all you had to do was technically develop it. And planting an orchard was considered developing land. And so he left um, his home in Massachusetts and started heading west. And as he would head west to these new lands, he would plant apple trees along the way to claim the land as his own. And then he'd come back when they were developed and he'd set up cideries on them because you know, early American drinking culture had nothing to do with beer. It was primarily all hard cider. And it was Prohibition that really destroyed that from history. Um, Johnny grew specifically tart apples made for brewing. And when the Prohibition law was passed, most of his orchards were burned to the ground, which is when the drinking in America kind of shifted away from cider to more beer and more hard alcohols. So he was a real dude, but he just was not trying to feed us. He was trying to get us drunk and help us all have a good time. He is the captain. His new
0: book is Fucking History, 111 Lessons You Should Have Learned in School. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Kyle, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed this conversation and the book, man.
1: Thank you very much, Trey.